Greetings in the name of Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks unity in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ by his word through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. As Peter boldly confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We boldly confess the truth of the entirety of God's inerrant word, nothing more, nothing less. And we do it all for the sake of a clear conscience in Christ for you. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. As we gather here today, we continue with the, the article that is told that the church stands or falls, Justification and the Apology, Article 4. Now, hold on tight, because we'll be doing this for five episodes. This is our second episode of the study of the Augsburg, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession and Justification. And as I mentioned last time, it is very important that whenever we are discussing with others about the heart of what it means to be Lutheran, don't go down to structure. Don't go down to exactly how our churches look. Don't go down to how the people even act. Because it all comes down to the heart of the, of the Apology and the Augsburg Confession, Article 4. Because no order, tradition, perfect hymnody, or building will ever be able to take away this truth that people are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and, and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. That is exactly what is said in the Augsburg Confession. And the reason why Melanchthon and the Reformers had to expand on it is because it is important. So hold on tight today as we continue in justification. Open up your Book of Concord and open up your Bible, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Apology, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back Pastor Matt Moss of St. John's Lutheran Church in Corcoran, Minnesota. Pastor Moss, welcome back to Concord Matters. It is good to be back with you. Pastor, uh, what's the start with this? And I want to ask all of our guests, our, like I said, five different studies on justification from the Apology. Let's just go with the very basics, very important for each one of us as Christian people. Why is justification so important for the Christian? Justification is important because it is not an abstract theological concept. It is a concrete reality that every soul will face. We confess it in all three of our creeds that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, either on that last day when Christ returns or at the moment a person dies, they will face a judgment. And the unbelieving will be uh, rejected and condemned on account of their unbelief. And the believing who have clung to the promises of God will be declared not guilty for the sake of Christ. So just to be clear again, this is not a metaphor or theologizing. This is a concrete reality that every human being will face someday. And for that, we want to go in clinging to the promises of God and not clinging to our own merits, works, or deeds. Well, that's what is that's what I love about this uh, study is it is really that simple and it is really that uh, serious. 
And so I encourage you, our listeners, to listen to every one of our episodes on uh, justification. As you look at all the other doctrines, they're very important. We need to look at each one of them and confess them very clearly. But today, especially how Pastor Moss has said this, this is why it's so important, because Christ will come again and there will be judgment. Therefore, what are we clinging to and, and where is our hope, which obviously is in Christ, which is a beautiful thing throughout this uh, article that we will continue to confess over and over and over again. Pastor, is there anything else you want us to make sure our listeners understand before we start digging in more into justification? I think we often uh, assume and maybe even in the negative sense apologize for our doctrinal position as a confessional and doctrinal church. And we do treat things that are concrete as if they were abstract, as if they were just theologizing. Uh, and so just once more, I want to emphasize to all of our hearers, uh, this is as real as if Tomorrow, you have to appear in traffic court to answer for the traffic violation for which you were cited. That's not abstract. That's not uh, symbolical. That's something that's going to happen. And now imagine that it's not a traffic ticket, but it is the judge who sees all rights and wrongs and knows our hearts. Now, that is the reality. That is as concrete as it gets. And every last one of us will have to uh, give an account concerning his own deeds. And so to prepare not only ourselves for that to come at this very moment, tonight, this day, uh, but to uh, take that message to our loved ones, to our neighbors, to our communities, uh, that they too will have that moment and to prepare them for it. Uh, that is our calling as a, as a confessional Christian church body to make that confession in our communities. Well, the Lord help us to do so. We are on page 87 of the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions from Concordia Publishing House. We're on page 87, and we're beginning on number 40 on the bottom of page 87. I'll be reading from number 40 through 47 as we once again dig deeper into justification. And Melanchthon writes, By their own strength, people cannot fulfill God's law. They are all under sin, subject to eternal wrath and death. Because of this, we cannot be freed by the law from sin and be justified. But the promise of forgiveness of sins and of justification has been given us for Christ's sake, who was given for us in order that he might make satisfaction for the sins of the world. He has been appointed as a mediator and atoning sacrifice. This promise does not depend on our merits but freely offers forgiveness of sins and justification, as Paul says in Romans 11, verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would, be, would no longer be grace. And in another place, Romans 3, 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, forgiveness of sins is freely offered, nor does reconciliation depend on our merits. Because if forgiveness of sins were depend on our merits and reconciliation were from the law, it would be useless. Since we do not fulfill the law, it would also follow that we would never gain the promise of reconciliation. Paul reasons this way in Romans 4.14. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. 
if promise would depend on our merits and the law, which we never fulfilled, it would follow that the promise would be useless. Since justification is gained through the free promise, it follows that we cannot justify ourselves. Otherwise, why would there be a need to promise? Since the promise can only be received by faith, the gospel, which is properly the promise of forgiveness of sins and of justification for Christ's sake, proclaims the righteousness of faith in Christ. The law does not teach this, nor is the righteousness of the law. For the law demands our works and our perfection. But for Christ's sake, the gospel freely offers reconciliation to us who have been vanquished by sin and death. This is received not by works, but by faith alone. This faith does not bring to God confidence in one's own merits, but only confidence in the promise or the mercy promised in Christ. The special faith by which an individual believes that for Christ's sake his sins are forgiven him, and that for Christ's sake God is reconciled and sees us favorably, gains forgiveness of sins and justifies us. In repentance, namely in terrors, this faith comforts and encourages hearts. It regenerates us and brings the Holy Spirit so that we may be able to fulfill God's law, to love God, truly fear God, truly be confident that God hears prayer, and obeys God in all afflictions. This faith puts to death concupiscence and the like, so faith freely receives forgiveness of sins. It sets Christ the mediator and atoning sacrifice against God's wrath. It does not present our merits and our, or our love. This faith is true knowledge of Christ and helps itself to the benefits of Christ. This faith regenerates hearts and comes from the fulfilling of the law. Not a syllable exists about this faith in the teaching of our adversaries. Therefore, we find equal fault with the adversaries because A, they teach only the righteousness of the law, and B, they do not teach the righteousness of the gospel, which proclaims the righteousness of faith in Christ. Pastor, this is, I think this is pure gold. Where do you want to start us off? I'd probably direct the, the listener to uh, consider throughout this whole section, but especially in the opening paragraphs, the distinction between the law and the promises. We're very used to the language of law and gospel, but here the word promise is used uh, repeatedly for the gospel, that what the gospel is, is a word of promise, a promised forgiveness of sins, a promised verdict, to use the justification or legal language, a promised verdict of how we will appear before God uh, being declared righteous. This is a, a, a future tense uh, thing that on the day we die or on Christ's return, we will be declared righteous. Or think about that great promise of baptism, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Right? This is a promise from God that you can count on. As you look at the words, I was, I was highlighting a number of different words that really come full, uh, full bore in these specific paragraphs. And some of them are forgiveness of sins, are all over the place, reconciliation, and, and it, it speaks a lot about righteousness as well. So, Pastor, you want to break down just some of the highlights that we see Maybe those specific words, I mean, it's everywhere you look, just to kind of give us a good taste of what Melanchthon and the Reformers are really trying to emphasize in this article. Sure. 
building upon the previous articles and especially the doctrine of original sin, we can certainly see how every last one of us has a problem, the sinful nature and the sins committed that flow from that. So the greatest need uh, will come down to dealing with those sins. And it's been abundantly clear throughout this article that cannot be sufficiently done through works or merits. Thus, those sins have to be forgiven. They have to be let go of by God who holds them uh, over us. We have to be reconciled, which would mean to take two who are separated and bring them back together. And the righteousness that would be spoken of in these sections is the righteousness of keeping the law, which since we cannot, we need that substitute who is mentioned here, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, his, his righteousness is often talked about in, in both the active and passive obedience, that he actively kept the law in every point, committed no sins, and then in his passive obedience, uh, the righteousness of laying down his own life, giving it up for us uh, so that we would have God's wrath and anger stayed. So as we look at justification, I've heard this normal... Um, wording, simplistic, simplistic way of speaking about justification, just as if I did not sin. Uh, Pastor, in light of what we're, what you just mentioned, which is just absolutely beautiful as we look at justification, um, what's the strength in a statement like that? It's, it's way simplistic. If it was that simple, you wouldn't have this long of an article in the apology, right? Um, but to say, just as if I did not sin, can you break this down for us as like you're teaching your kids at your, at home or in your school, um, to speak about how we think of justification simplistically, but also to try to flush it out. Sure. Imagine a, a ledger with all of your sins on one side and one column and all of your, uh, good deeds on the other. By those works alone, the good deed side would be pretty empty, as the previous paragraphs in, in the Confessions talked about. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Um, so the red-lettered side would be filled with our sinful deeds. If God were to open that book, however, and see that, he would find that on the uh, sin side of the column, uh, there's been a, a spilling of blood. Uh, we cannot see any of the sinful deeds that have been recorded because they have been uh, smudged, blotted, and flooded with the blood of Christ, that his blood has shed that. So where, where, the, uh, where the language comes up short, just as if I never sinned, well, this isn't pretend. You know, we don't want to take it that justification is not pretending that the sins never happened. It is the atoning sacrifice of Christ, right? The blood has been shed, and now the benefits of that sacrifice on the cross are brought to the individual standing before us through the word preached and in absolution and through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which unite us to that Christ and to his benefits so that his righteous life becomes ours. So it's not only just as if I'd never sinned, but just as if I am entirely in Christ, just as if his complete righteousness is mine, just as if his sinlessness is mine, just as if his life, death, and resurrection is mine, 
And we know it is because he says as much in our baptism. Well, that, I mean, how can we not say anything but thanks be to God? (laughs) Because you're right. There's a lot of times we will speak and it's almost like it's pretend time. Like, oh, just as if he didn't sin. Oh, that's great. And then you go home and, and you're done. But to actually think that his righteousness is mine. Galatians 2 comes to mind. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Uh, that, that, so we might have the righteousness of God. That, that we have that righteousness. And, and Pastor, can you even capture that for us? Why? I mean, that, that's, that's huge. I mean, what does that mean for the everyday Christian, the baptized, redeemed Christian, to fully know that this righteousness of Christ, resurrected, this righteousness is ours as well? What does that mean for the Christian? It means you can go to your deathbed or to that judgment day with confidence, with hope, and even with joy and gladness because the judge who is appointed to judge has made you his brother, has made you his friend, has made you his bride, has made you a member of his own body. These are the images scripture uses uh, for he who is the appointed judge to judge the living and the dead, and we are in him. There is no fear. There's no cause for alarm now. There's cause for thanksgiving, for joy, for proclamation, uh, that we would see all men saved by this same Christ. In those days, we end our scripture reading, our reading, excuse me, our confession reading on number 47. It speaks about the adversaries. And I want to touch on this a little bit because it says, not a syllable exists about this faith and the teaching of our adversaries. Therefore, we find equal fault with the adversaries because A, they they teach only the righteousness of the law, and B, they do not teach the righteousness of the gospel, which is what you just proclaim so great here, which proclaims the righteousness of faith in Christ, this righteousness that we have. Now, it says here that they only teach righteousness of the law, and we can easily think, eh, you know, well, that doesn't really happen today. I mean, why? Okay, Lutherans, you got that, but you're no different than any other church body. Pastor, is this is this still happening that there's a proclamation that we are righteous by the law and word and deed by churches? Most certainly, and it's every man's natural inclination to want to justify himself. It's the, the natural religious angle uh, that all other world religions will be saved by their works. And even many within broad-speaking Christianity, we would call it heterodox or uh, false teaching churches, will ultimately come back to the righteousness of the law. Maybe to varying degrees, not as exclusively where we'd say only the righteousness of the law, but if it is predominantly the righteousness of the law, or you know, fifty-one percent of the righteousness of the law, or you know. In paper and in catechism class, it's gospel and Jesus, but every single sermon, every single song, every single worship practice, every single public statement or webpage thing is a moralizing, then that will be the righteousness of the law exclusively in practice, even if there's something reserved on paper for the doctrine of Christ and the gospel. Can you help our listeners just to evaluate that a little bit? Uh, because when we speak, like you just mentioned, this is hard work to always be 
uh, one, for our pastors, we pray for our pastors, to preach the gospel in its purest, uh, in its fullest, the joy that you have just told us. For our parents, especially our fathers, as they teach the faith, um, to be able to do it to the gospel in its fullest. Uh, because it sometimes we can get feeling like we just heard gospel when we just heard law. Because this is really hard work. So you kind of help our listeners a little bit to help evaluate that they are staying clinging to the justification by faith alone, Christ alone, because it can be kind of uh, messy at times. I suppose the first thing to remind ourselves always is uh, not to be deceived by the superficial. Uh, Not every sign that has the word church on it is a church. Not every sign that says Lutheran on it will be Lutheran. And we need to be discerning hearers. Uh, First John tells us to judge the spirits, test the spirits. We are not to go around, you know, lazy and blind. Sometimes we might historically wring our hands that we don't have Lutheran princes, making sure that all the churches in this region are Lutheran. And we have to exist in this pluralistic society, many different religions, let alone Christian denominations. And how can any of us know the truth? Well, if that forces every single home and every single father to be more firmly rooted in the word of God, reading, studying, inwardly digesting so that he can discern the things of the spirit in his midst, uh, we should never regret that. Uh, We will be stronger for that, not weaker for that, uh, as opposed to just hoping some prince And if the prince is Lutheran, we can trust that our pastors are Lutheran and all just coast along. Uh, I I would not want to lose the word for that sake. Um, It can be a a difficult task to to listen to preaching and teaching and always be on your guard and viewing everything through the lens of Christ and him crucified and, and listening for that pure proclamation of the gospel. But that is what we are called to do. Well, the Lord uh, keep us steadfast in that word. What I want to do here is we are on page 88, um, and we are, I'm going to read the note when it talks about, because there's sections in here where it asks kind of questions that will naturally arise as you read about this important article. And so it begins with this question is, what is justifying faith? I'll read the note, and then I'll go uh, to the next two paragraphs, and then we will take our break. Um, And we will discuss further everything that goes into what is justifying faith. The note. No other article in the Book of Concord so thoroughly presents how the Roman church errs when it comes to the central teaching of Scripture. The pontifical confutation stated adamantly that justification is not by faith alone, which some incorrectly teach, but faith which works through love. This view was affirmed by the Council of Trent and remains the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church to this day. The Council of Trent condemns the Bible's teaching that man is saved apart from any works, by grace alone, through faith alone. This condemnation is still clearly evident in the most recent edition of the Catholic Catechism. And we return to the Confession. The adversaries imagine that faith is only a knowledge of the history of Christ. Therefore, they teach that it can coexist with mortal sin. They say nothing about faith, by which Paul so frequently says that people are justified. 
For those who are counted as righteous before God do not live in mortal sin. But the faith that justifies is not merely a knowledge of history. It is to believe in God's promise. In the promise for Christ's sake, forgiveness of sins and justification are freely offered. And so that no one may suppose that this is mere knowledge, we will add further. It is to want and to receive the offered promise of forgiveness of sins and of justification. The difference between this faith and the righteousness of the law can be easily discerned. Faith is the divine service, Latreia, that receives the benefits offered by God. The righteousness of the law is the divine service that offers to God our merits. God wants to be worshipped through faith so that we receive from him those things he promises and offers. As we, uh, as we chew on those words, it's time to take our break. We're confessing the truth of justification as confessed in the scriptures and in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and we will be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are confessing the truth of justification according to Holy Scripture from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, with Pastor Matt Moss of St. John's Lutheran Church in Corcoran, Minnesota. Now, Pastor, we just got done, we have finished reading uh, the note of what is justifying faith on page 88 and also 48 and 49 in uh, page 89. One, One I want to touch on to begin with, and I want to get your thoughts on this is how often do people assume that, for example, a pastor's kid really knows their Bible or a pastor's kid or a guy going to seminary really knows their Bible and therefore they must have faith. Uh, What are the confessors telling us about such an idea? Well, that uh, having a proper definition of the term is going to make a difference on the proper evaluation of whether that person (laughs) has faith or not. So we begin with the adversaries discounting faith's part in justification primarily because of a faulty definition of faith, which is uh, only historical knowledge. And we're going to say more about that in the confessions in the, in the paragraphs that are in the 50s. So they move on to what, what they mean by it, right? So we, the reformers would say, uh, it is not just history. But there is uh, a clinging to the promise, as we heard earlier, a wanting that promise, a receiving of that promised forgiveness of sins. And even more than that, there's a, a lifestyle in daily life and a, if I, for, uh, to use a phrase that will confuse our listeners, but we'll, we'll clarify it, uh, there's a worship style to justification, just as there is a, a lifestyle to justification. So in the dead center of paragraph 48, it says, those who are counted as righteous before God, 
And we're saying that as people having justifying faith, those who are counted as righteous for, for God do not live in mortal sin. Now, I don't know how many of our modern Luthers really grasp that statement or can agree with it, but here it is. We have it in our confessions. Uh, the distinction between mortal and venial sin is one that probably needs a little teasing out periodically, just so people remember. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church of their day had a distinction between mortal sins, sins that condemn, and venial sins, which could be atoned for with the system of penance. Uh, and if not in this life, then purgatory comes in as an additional uh, opportunity for that. The, the Lutherans go back to the Bible in a lot of these distinctions, and what our confessions would refer to as mortal sin will be more familiar to your hearers from the small catechism about uh, the confession and absolution and office of the keys section, uh, that those who are living in open, impenitent sin are to be excommunicated or put outside the Christian congregation until they repent. Uh, that would be to live in mortal sin, an open, impenitent sin. So uh, whether that person is a well-trained student of the word or even a, a preacher's kid or a seminary student, if they are living in open, impenitent sin, we cannot say that justifying faith is present because justifying faith, those who are counted as righteous before God, do not live in mortal sin. They do not live in open, impenitent sin, but rather they desire to be right with God. They want that free forgiveness of sins and justification, and that will bear fruit in life. Uh, probably more on that a little later in, the, in this article and in the articles that follow where the apology will take up good works. And let's move that aside, as you mentioned. Looking at paragraph 49, you kind of have a... a... Uh, a personal story that goes into this. Uh, th this is a little close to the heart when it talks about divine service and receiving the benefits and what that means for us as Lutherans. So you want to expand on that? Yeah, paragraph 49 is probably my favorite paragraph in the whole Confessions, and uh, it made a Lutheran out of me, even though I was born and raised in a Lutheran church. Um, and so I, I, I don't want to belabor your poor listeners with my whole life story, but it's, uh, it's a paragraph worth digesting. Um, it, it centers on a distinction between justifying faith and trying to justify ourselves with our works. And what I think is uh, most helpful and clear about this paragraph is that what we believe should be visible in our worship. What we believe should be apparent to everyone, believers and non-believers, Lutherans and adversaries. Everyone should be able to recognize from our worship that we actually believe we are justified by grace freely for the sake of Christ and not our works. And the flip side being that the churches who would be described here as adversaries uh, who do not hold this justification as highly, as paramount, as the article on which the church stands or falls, that too will be evident in their worship. So a, a simple adage that, uh, that I'll just borrow from others, you know, Lutherans will worship the way Lutherans worship because they believe what Lutherans believe, just like Roman Catholics will worship the way Roman Catholics worship if they believe what Roman Catholics believe. Evangelicals, Pentecostals, go through any of the denominational differences and you shall see some of that. Now the question then becomes, what does it say when a Lutheran church might say, Worship like 
a Pentecostal, a Baptist, or some other group that does not believe what we believe about justification, the means of grace. Well, it indicates that there may be a, there may actually be a faulty faith at work. There may actually be something different we believe if our worship is now imitating those who are exclusively in worship, offering their works to God. And the bold and audacious thing about this paragraph, which I found so helpful as somebody uh, raised in the Lutheran Church, kind of torn between styles, it's torn between uh, a Lutheran service at one time of day and a less than Lutheran service at a later time in the day, uh, is that this paragraph actually boldly states what God wants. Not about our worship preference, not about our style, but what God wants. How does God want to be worshipped? What's his favorite worship style? His favorite worship style, according to this paragraph, is that we receive the things promised. That we would actually hear his word of promise, hear the absolution, hear the forgiveness of sins, believe it, receive it in the sacrament. Uh, so to, uh, to get into the nuts and bolts of the language here, because this is what struck me the first time I read it, uh, faith is the divine service, and then it gives you a Greek word here. And so every you know, college student learning Greek, his ears perk up, like, oh, a Greek word thrown in here. Yeah, a Greek word was used in the Latin and then it was repeated in the German with a German word, Gottesdienst, which can be translated divine service. The Greek word latreia would simply be a word for worship. It's not the only word for worship in the New Testament. Uh, there's another one, liturgia, that is very close to our English word liturgy. Uh, in the Old Testament Greek translation, liturgia would be more like the priestly sacrifice, and latreia would be the general worship uh, of all. But in the New Testament, that distinction really disappears. Uh, so that, that'd be a separate Greek topic for a separate New Testament study. The point is, we are talking here about worship. There is a way of worship that emphasizes the receiving of God's gifts, of God's grace, of God's mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification. And then there's also a divine service, a worship, according to the righteousness of the law. And in that kind of a divine service or worship, it is entirely focused on what we are offering to God, what we are doing for him. And that will be abundantly clear. You can see and hear that distinction when you listen for it. And it was like the, uh, the window shattering, and I could see clearly through. This is why I was having uh, some crises of conscience between what we believe about our justification by grace through faith and being fed an almost exclusive diet of worship as what we do for God. Uh, songs that sing exclusively of what we are doing for God, an absence perhaps of the sacrament frequently or regularly, uh, moralistic preaching instead of proclamatory and absolving preaching. Suddenly these things became very clear. Uh, and so th this paragraph opened up new, uh, new doors and new windows into the, the history of the Lutheran Church's worship and what made it so different from everyone else's. And even places where it's so subtle, you go to a Roman Catholic service and it's such a similar liturgy, except then you hear the sacrificial language of the Eucharist brought in that turns it into the priest's re-sacrificing of Christ before the Father. 
or you go to an evangelical or Episcopal or Methodist service that might even be very liturgical with traditional hymns, but there is no confession and absolution. The preaching does not proclaim one word of forgiveness of sins. Suddenly you'll spot it everywhere and you'll never want to go back to anything except, uh, you know, for simplicity's sake, the Lutheran service book and our beautiful liturgy and hymnody. Can you, can you break it down a little bit? What you will see at a Lutheran service that reflects, like you said, receiving the gifts, uh, uh, receive from those th- from, from him those things he promises and offers. Can you give us just a few examples of, like you mentioned, preaching, but are there other parts of the service that very clearly show us this receiving emphasis that we have as Christians? Yes, if the listener would uh, think about it as the letter W instead of the letter M. So the letter W, you make a stroke down. God is bringing something to speak to you. And then a small stroke up of our thanks and praise to God. Sometimes as simple as just saying the word, Amen, let it be. And then more word down from God and our response back to him. Whereas a, a righteousness of the law worship will focus primarily on we are doing this for God and he may do something back to us, small stroke down. Uh, so th- that kind of image may help uh, the, the direction of it. I think also if, uh, if your listeners do attend a, a, a more uh, liturgical Lutheran church, you might recognize this in the direction the pastor is facing, spinning back and forth, sometimes like a top. When he is facing <laughs> us, the pastor is in a sacramental capacity, right? He absolves you facing you, proclaiming God's word. He invokes God's name even before that, recalling your baptism. He faces with you towards the altar for more of the sacrificial elements where we would offer God our thanks and praise or our prayers and petitions like in the Kyrie or the hymn of praise. He faces you when he is reading God's word. Uh, the Old Testament, the Epistle, and the Holy Gospel lesson. He is uh, facing you during the proclamation of the Gospel through the sermon. He is facing with you at other points of the service of praise and and offering. He is facing you uh, even to the, the blessing after communion and the final benediction where God's name is placed on you with the, the benediction, the good word from God as old as Numbers 6. And so... Uh, you know, some of our liturgical purists, maybe seminary professors, would, would love for that to be really the last thing, just the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, that's a word of justification. Right? If you're going to judgment day and that's the word you've heard and that's the Lord who you're, whom you're meeting, you can be glad. And so say amen. Then, of course, you know, tradition is we have to sing a hymn, maybe have 10 minutes of announcements and handshake line, et cetera. So it gets a little diluted. But that's where it, the, the, the gospel word, the justification language, uh, really wraps it all up right there in a nice bow with the benediction. And all we can do in response is say, amen. Yeah, let it be. I've received that word. I can't offer him anything else but to say, okay, let it be so. And it's a great reminder for us because how often do we go to church and we're thinking about all these extra activities we need to be doing and the whole time all around us, especially like you mentioned in the liturgical service, we are receiving all these gifts from Christ himself. 
all these gifts that remind us it is not about your works. It's about Christ's works. And that when you do do works, you're failing. So that's the law and call for repentance and the full sufficient sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's dig into that a little more. I, I appreciate your your words on that. And 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 I encourage you too that if if you have some of these struggles too of trying to you are listeners trying to figure out um, you know, how does this work in worship and it's an encouragement for you to one talk to your pastor. I think Pastor Moss and myself would be more than willing to talk about such things because our goal is always to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. So we're at number fifty on page eighty nine as it continues as we spoke about before this about. What's faith? Is it knowledge or is it something else? Number 50. Faith means not only a knowledge of the history, but the kind of faith that believes in the promise. Paul plainly testifies about this when he says in Romans 4.16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. He judges that the promise cannot be received unless it comes through faith. Therefore, he puts them together as things that belong to one another. He connects the promise and faith. It would be easy to decide what faith is if we consider the creed, where the article certainly stands, the forgiveness of sins. It is not enough to believe that Christ was born, suffered, raised again, unless we add that add also this article, which is the purpose of the history, the forgiveness of sins. To this article, the rest must be referred, namely that for Christ's sake and not because of our merits, forgiveness of sins is given to us. For what need was there that Christ was given for our sins if our merits can make satisfaction for our sins? So Melanchthon brings back this, what's the difference of knowledge and faith? And what's the focus? Yeah, history is not unimportant, but faith is to believe in the promise, is to cling to what that history actually says and what that history says is that Christ died for our sins, made promises, and the sure guarantee of those promises is the history that he is risen. And I like find it fascinating that they keep bringing back the words forgiveness of sins throughout. And somebody... We can, this is a term we probably have, we have to define as well, because we can speak forgiveness in our culture, but it's more of a forgive, but I will never forget. Um, so it's kind of a, <laughs> definitely an exhortation as opposed to a comfort to the soul. Uh, Pastor, can you tell us a little bit about when they keep talking about forgiveness of sins and justification, what that means for us today and to make sure we're clear? Yes, in a, in a human sense, forgiveness, you know, that I might counsel between two members would be to not hold the other person uh, in the punishment they might deserve, not to give, not to pay them back as they even ought to be. And so if we take that understanding towards the forgiveness of sins before God, how we stand before God, he has every right to punish us with death and hell, with eternal wrath and condemnation. He lets that go. He does not punish us with that. Instead, his son, our substitute, took that so that sins could be uplifted. Um, obviously, in a human sense, there is an emotional baggage and a memory of sins committed. Forgiveness is not a time machine. It's not... Uh, 
also purely psychological as if we could just get over it uh that may not happen on this side of eternity so i just i guess that would be the, the one helpful thing is to remember as we're talking about this article we are dealing primarily with how we stand before god full sins forgiven he actually has no recollection he's not keeping a tally sheet to come back at you a month later and say after he supposedly forgave you well that makes it x number of times uh, that that's kind of a human experience where we say we forgive and then the next time you do it we kept the tally sheet running uh, but that's not how god forgives uh, would that christians could imitate god in this forgiveness knowing that we can't we we then do need kind of pastoral counsel from the word of god on how to bear those burdens uh, from others sinning against us. Let's continue on. There's much to cover. We're on number 53 on page 89, and we read through 56. Whenever we speak of justifying faith, we must keep in mind that these three objects belong together, promise, grace, and Christ's merits as the price and atonement. The promises received through faith. Grace excludes our merits and means that the benefit is offered only through mercy. Christ's merits are the price, because there must be a certain atonement for our sins. Scripture frequently cries out for mercy. The Holy Fathers often say that we are saved by mercy. Therefore, whenever mercy is mentioned, we must keep in mind that faith, which receives the promise of mercy, is required there. Again, whenever we speak about faith, we want an object of faith to be understood, namely the promised mercy. For faith justifies and saves, not because it is a worthy work in itself, but only because it receives the promised mercy. It speaks here about the object of faith. And so you speak about object and it speaks of mercy. Why is that important that we always remember that Faith has an object, and that is the mercy of our Lord. Faith is not clinging to itself, but to something outside of itself. Uh, faith, at some point within a Christian, yes, faith will mean that you're aware of your own faith, but that is not necessarily properly directed to the words and promises of Christ. Uh, many uh, bold hypocrites could be faithful in a wrongly conceived object of their faith. Uh, could be their works, could be a personality cult that they are following a gifted, charismatic individual, a personality, and that is what they're hinging their faith or trust in. The object that justifying faith clings to is God's mercy that God's mercy is demonstrated to us in the death and resurrection of his son, is delivered to us in concrete certainty in the sacraments and in the pure, clear preaching of the gospel, uh, that is something you can cling to, something you can hold on to that is outside of yourself. It's not dependent on how you feel on a given day. It's outside of man. It's not trusting in princes or charismatic preachers, but in God himself his promises of what the history of Christ's death and resurrection actually means for us, for we who receive that, that good news and that mercy. And it is important, too, that this mercy is God's action. In our own church body, we've had many examples of 
uh, theology of mercy, when we speak about being merciful to your neighbor. But when we we look at the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, how often it is somebody who is in dire need who goes to Jesus and doesn't say, Lord, give it to me now, even though that that tends to happen at times. Um, But the people who say, Lord, have mercy, are the ones that they say that in faith because they know that this God gives that mercy. Not my mercy, but the mercy that the Lord gives freely on account of Christ. And also, I love how you brought up faith. Um, you will go to, let's say, a craft place, or like you go on vacation, you go to kind of these artsy type of places. And a lot of times, they'll have some kind of board that they painted, and on it, it says faith. And so you hear a lot of people say, I have faith. And the question is, what is the object of that faith? Do they have faith in faith? Which means, I have faith that something will happen because I'm the one who is in control of this thing? Or faith in Christ, faith in his death and resurrection, faith in such things. And so this is another word. We've kind of fallen upon a lot of words today that we need to make sure we have defined well. Um, faith uh, is can be messed up in today's culture. Do you want to give any insight to that on how you notice that happening, that faith needs an object, and sometimes we speak about it in a whole different way? I think what you've highlighted is right on. It's, it's kind of a pop term. It's a word that people can ascribe to themselves and thus never be questioned. I mean, who could, uh, you know, challenge that statement if someone said, well, I'm a faithful person or I'm a person of faith. Um, It's a lot like the spiritual but not religious claim. You kind of need each individual to define it and they're each going to define it differently. But one thing's for sure, when they say I'm spiritual but not religious, they probably don't mean the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, when they say kind of generic, ill-defined things about faith, they're probably not talking about uh, the Christian faith and the faith as uh, clinging to a clear promise of the gospel as the solution to all of our problems from conception till judgment day. Well, make sure that we have faith in the promise of Christ and his death and resurrection for your forgiveness. And also, as we say, for Christ's sake. Pastor, we have about five minutes left in our time, a little bit more. So let's read the rest of this and wrap it together about what this all means for us. In uh, number 57 on page 89. Throughout the prophets and the Psalms, this worship, this Latreia, is highly praised even though the law does not teach the free forgiveness of sins. The Old Testament fathers knew the promise about Christ, that God, for Christ's sake, wanted to forgive sins. They understood that Christ would be the price for our sins. They knew that our works are not a price for so great a matter. So they received free mercy and forgiveness by faith, just as the saints in the New Testament. To this point belong those frequent repetitions about mercy and faith that appear in the Psalms and the Prophets. For example, Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Here David confesses his sins and does not list his merits. He adds, But with you there is forgiveness. Here he comforts himself by his trust in God's mercy. And he refers to the promise, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. This means because you have promised the forgiveness of sins, I am sustained by your promise. Therefore, the fathers also were justified, not by the law, but by the promise and faith. It is amazing that the adversaries diminish faith to such a degree, 
even though they see that it is everywhere praised as a great service. For example, Psalm 50 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. God wants himself to be known. He wants himself to be worshipped, so that we receive benefits from him and receive them because of his mercy, not because of our merits. This is the richest consolation in all afflictions. The adversaries ban sense consolation when they diminish and disparage faith and teach only that by means of works and merits, people interact with God. One thing that always strikes me, and I think about this goes back to Sunday school, confirmation, young children, they just get it. We'll talk all the time about um, you are saved by grace alone, Christ alone, um, and, and this is all by faith alone. And this happens as we see throughout the New Testament. And then the question comes up, very smart little kid will say, well, how were the people in the Old Testament saved? And what would you say based on what we, obviously scripture, but also what Melanchthon's writing here? The Old Testament saints are saved by faith in the promises of God. Same way we are. <laughs> well, that's easy. When I was around the fire with my kids at camp, I should have just said that. I probably made up some stuff along the way. Lord, have mercy upon me. But it always comes down to the promise of Christ. So like you said, keep it simple as we continue to proclaim this truth. What else do you want to highlight in these last few paragraphs of, uh, of our readings today? I think the finishing line brings us back to the, the sweet spot of all of our Lutheran confessions, and that is comfort and consolation. God wants to be known and worshipped the right way. He does not want to be known as a judge who can never be satisfied, constantly demands more and more works and merits. He wants to be known as a God of mercy. He wants to be worshipped in the faith that justifies. And then the confessions say, so that we receive benefits from him. And we receive them because of his mercy, not because of our merits. This, my friends, is total comfort. When you are sick or have suffered tragic loss or the weight of your sins is bearing down on your head, you do have a God of mercy. And he wants you to know that. He wants you to receive that mercy. And that mercy happens in Latreia, worship, divine service. For every other religion and much of heterodox Christianity, worship is an activity you have to do directed towards a passive and distant deity. In the Evangelical Lutheran Church, the church of this Lutheran confession, we worship God by receiving all the comfort, all the love, all the mercy, all the promises of God. That's why I want, I'm a Lutheran. I hope you'll stay one too. <laughs> Very good. So pastor, uh, one last thought as we get to the end of our time, how would you uh, summarize our time as we read uh, in the paragraphs 40 through 60 of justification? How would you summarize it in one uh, short sentence or two? I'll go back to my favorite line in the whole confessions. The difference between this justifying faith and the righteousness of the law can be easily discerned. Read and study your Bible. Read these confessions. Go to church and listen to your pastor. And the difference between justifying faith that saves and the righteousness of the law that can never be met, it'll be easily discerned. 
Pastor Matt Moss of St. John's Lutheran Church in Corcoran, Minnesota, clearly confessing the truth of justification according to Scripture in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Pastor Moss, thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having me on. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner, and thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.